are some things I really enjoy, and one of those things is thinking out loud. Having a conversation, I really have always enjoyed that, and I really benefit from the opportunity to think out loud. So we're gonna think out loud here on America Out Loud. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. Faith Is is the program where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I've been thinking about that definition a little bit. I, I like it. People refer to it every now and then. Sometimes people ask me, can they use it? It's not proprietary. I don't mind if they use it. I appreciate it if they give me credit, but sometimes I guess I shouldn't ask for credit for things that I say. But that's getting off the subject a little bit. That's the danger, I guess, of thinking out loud. But faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, what does that really mean? Now, I've been thinking about that a little bit, um, not in any great detail, but I wondered if maybe we should revisit that definition before we get into the story of Jacob and the continuation of his journey as heir of the covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's Jacob's turn to pick up the covenant responsibilities. But back to faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, I always assume, and I probably shouldn't always assume, that when I say God, I'm referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that the Bible reveals to us, the God that was revealed in the person and the work of Jesus, the God who created all that we know and all that we could never know, the God who knows things we will never know. And I've been thinking about that, and how do we... How do we come to have faith in God, and what does that really mean to have faith in God? Now, I never liked the idea of blind faith. I always thought that was kind of, kind of. Um, uh, sometimes I want to think it's kind of silly. Uh, sometimes I think it's kind of a, 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 an ideal that's just impossible for any of us. I mean, blind faith. What what area of our life do we ever have blind faith? I mean, we. We have confidence in some things, and we have enough confidence in, to, to go forward with them, to depend upon them. We have enough confidence in our cars that we use them. I mean, little things like that. But it's never a blind faith. It's a faith that's been developed because we have reason to have that confidence. We have confidence in other people. And again, we don't know that they're going to do the right thing just because we have confidence in them. But over time, we have had the opportunity to see them, to get along with them or not get along with them. But we have the opportunity to develop confidence in them or a lack of confidence. So what is it about faith in God that we need to consider? Well, again, I'm talking about the God of the Bible, revealed in the pages of the what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we frequently say, and as we talked about last week. But faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, there, that absolute confidence would have certainly implied or states straight up, I guess, that we we don't waver. We have we're convicted of that. We have a conviction, a, 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 a steadfast resolve that we have this absolute confidence that cannot be shaken. In God's trustworthiness, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, 
Where does that come from? Well, that would come from how God has revealed himself and shown himself and helped us see that he has been faithful to his promises. He does keep his commitments to people. It would come through life experience, I suppose, and hearing other people talk about their confidence in God and how they are convinced that God has seen them through things that we might think are unimaginable, but they managed because God was with them. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've learned in my life is that the more I have seen that I can be confident in God, the more it is to, tr- or the easier it is, I should say, to trust him. Doesn't mean that it's automatic. I'm not trying to pretend that. It doesn't mean that it doesn't involve some wrestling with God. We saw that with the story of Jacob there with the the man that the scripture talks about. Really, it was God himself wrestled with that. And the, the, the reality is at the end of it, God was honored by that wrestling and God blessed Jacob and touched him and changed his name. So I guess what I would like to encourage you to wrestle with is developing that kind of confidence in God. It's not the kind of confidence that has everything figured out. I wouldn't pretend to have everything figured out. God has helped me answer my most important questions in a way that that satisfies me, that resolves the tension of those questions. But I wouldn't say that everything that I have ever wondered about or wonder about to this day is resolved 100%. But here's what I have come to is that I can have confidence in God because God has shown me by his behavior, by the gift of a savior, by the resurrection of Jesus, by the promise of life as it was meant to be lived now and life later, that I can trust him. See, the question then comes down to is if I can get to that point that I realize I can trust him, the question is, will I trust him? That's a whole different circumstance. You know, a lot of people wrestle with these kinds of things, and they, they might even come to the point that they say, well, you know, I guess when I look at it a certain way, the Bible makes sense, maybe more sense than anything else of, of trying to make sense of life and and the way it works out. So so in that sense, we can say, okay, the Bible is good. I, I get that. And so maybe we could say that because of that, then I'm going to trust God. Or maybe people say, in spite of that, I won't trust God. You see, we humans, we have the capacity to come to a resolution of a lot of our concerns and, and a resolution of of our reasons to trust God. But then we also have the capacity to say, well, just because I have reason to trust God doesn't mean I'm going to, so I'm not going to. And I don't always know, I can't read anybody's mind, I don't know where you might be with wrestling with God and and actually trusting Him. But I know that sometimes people don't want to trust God because, well, they've developed this sense of themselves and other people know this about them that they're just a skeptic and they're going to remain a skeptic and they've made some statements or acted in certain ways and 
and they don't really want to go through the embarrassment of changing their mind. I, I get that. A pretty lame excuse when you know that God can be trusted. That might be one reason. Maybe another reason is because people say, well, you know, I can trust God, and I understand that that trusting God and 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 actually embracing Christian faith means that I become a follower of Jesus. And, and I understand that becoming a follower of Jesus means that I pattern my life after Jesus' life. And, well, some people might say this, I just don't want to do that. I don't want to stop doing certain things that I'm convinced Jesus wants me to stop doing. Maybe I don't want to stop holding a grudge against someone or being bitter about a disappointment or, well, I guess the list could go on for a long time. I don't want to presume on, on any one subject or another. Maybe there are behaviors that God would say, you know, I want you to come follow me and I want you to start doing. And, and, and we say, well, you know, I don't, don't want to do that. I don't want to do what I know God wants me to do. So we hide behind questions or reluctances or, well, we can put up a lot of things. And I don't know if you're hiding behind that, but here's, here's the, the point. As I think about faith and it being absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, my question comes back to this. Can you get to the point that you realize you can trust God in spite of your frustrations with with unanswered concerns or your frustrations with disappointments. I've had a few of those. I understand that. Probably we'll have some more. But in spite of all of that, can you come to the point that you can say, well, you know, I still, I can trust God. And if you can come to that point, and I think that some of that comes because God is reaching out to you by the Spirit of, of the living Christ, by the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And he's talking to you and he's saying, you know, you really can trust God and you know somewhere in your heart you know you can. Well, if, if you find yourself in that spot, then the next question obviously is, will you? Will you trust him? And how will that look in your life? And in spite of the fact that it may appear to other people and you may indeed have to admit that you've changed your mind about things, won't that lead to a better place? Why would you want to reject the God you know you can trust? And, and imagine, wouldn't it be great, isn't it great, that the story of the Bible is true? And because there is hope for a better world, I mean, there's got to be something inside of us that says, I want a better world than what we've got now. You know, life is good in many ways, but there's a lot of horrible stuff goes on. But there's going to come a day when God's going to wipe away all the tears, no more crying, no more pain. All the old stuff will pass away, and he will make everything new. Don't you want to live in a world like that? Doesn't that somehow intrigue and attract you? Now, for some people, they'd say no. They just want to do what they want to do. They are, they are like the temptation in the Garden of Eden. I want to be God of my life, and nothing anybody can say or do is going to change my mind. Well, God has given you that privilege. But I want you to remember that if you're kind of there, one of these days, in all likelihood, 
and I don't wish ill on you. Please don't think I am. I just know how life is and how it unfolds. I've lived a day or two. Wasn't born yesterday, and as they say, I didn't live all day for nothing. But as life unfolds, in all likelihood, you will come up against something, some circumstance, some situation that you cannot manage, you cannot control. And at that point, you're going to need help. You're going to need God to help you. Either help with the situation, the circumstance, and maybe change it, or change you to help you manage the challenge of the circumstance. Either way, that's going to happen, almost certainly. I wish for you every blessing. But when that day comes that you are faced with that kind of challenge, I hope you will remember that you had enough confidence you could trust him. You just wouldn't. And maybe at that moment, you'll change your mind and say, all right, I'm convinced in more ways than one, I'm going to trust him. Well, that was a little bit of a beginning sermon, I guess. They accuse me on Sundays here at our church of preaching more than one sermon because I have different spots in the service where I talk about different kinds of things. And at first, I didn't realize I was doing that. And I thought maybe when somebody pointed it out, maybe I shouldn't do that. But people seem to think it's okay. So you got a little taste of that today. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Bunch of good people here. We try to be a church that's worthy of God's blessing. Uh, We were talking about that a little bit this week. And one of the things I said to the guys when we were talking about it, I said, you know, one of the things we ought to be pleased with our church is that we, we are committed to seeking the truth in every area of life. And we live in a world where there's a lot of deception. And I don't know that I would try to toot our horn that we're such a worthy church. I, I don't, don't want to be bragging about that. But I do want to commend our church people. They are willing to hear the truth and to seek the truth and to know the truth as God reveals it to us. And, and I hope you are too. Well, we're, we're that kind of church. Your church might be that kind of church. I hope it is. I hope you find a church that, that believes the Bible. And, and a little bit later in the program, I want to talk about the Bible a little bit, because here at our church, it's the year of the Bible. And so I was thinking, but we haven't talked about that, or at least the Bible in that sense for a while. So I have a few thoughts about that. Maybe that'll help you. But before we get too far into this thing, we want to talk about the story that we want to look at today and uh, go through that a little bit. Now, as I said at the beginning, we're going to think out loud or think our way through this story. It's got a lot to it. We can't cover everything in it. And probably there will be a few things that you'll have questions about. And, and when you do, go look at the Bible. We're going to pick it up with Genesis chapter 33. That's the uh, place we left off last week. We talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we talked about Jacob's experience here where he wrestled all night with God and it changed him. And we talked about the ford there of the, of the Jabbok and how that represented a gateway. And as Jacob crossed that river and went on into the, the land of his, of his heritage and how it meant something different had happened in his life and he would behave differently. Not... differently, but differently. Well, so the crisis kind of came about over the idea that he was going to have to 
to meet Esau, his twin brother. And they had had, as, as you know the story, as we talked about the story, a very uh, challenging relationship from the very beginning. Well, Jacob left because Esau was going to kill him, so Jacob really ran for his life. Now he was coming back. He didn't really know how Esau would receive him, so he was doing everything he could to make that reunion a positive one and to show Esau that he didn't come back to take anything from him or to diminish him in any way, and he wanted to come back and reestablish their friendship on good terms. So Jacob brought all of his wealth, all that he had collected up when he worked for Laban and his household, traveled south, got to this ford. He got his animals across. He divided up some animals in several groups that he sent ahead to Esau as gifts, and then sent his family across. And finally, it was time for him to meet Esau and find out. Now Esau was approaching them with 400 men. And according to the story, there's no mention that Jacob had near that kind of men. It was as though Esau had an army, 400 men with him. So Jacob started across and headed toward the, the reunion with Esau. And it's very interesting that, that he bowed down to the ground seven different times. This was common in those days. This was the way people might come into the president or to the presence of a king. It would show that they meant no harm, that they were giving appropriate honor. This was an honor and shame culture, so that mattered. It would show that he had no aggressive intent or evil intent, so he bowed down seven times and approached him. And Esau met him, and they embraced, and they wept at the reunion. So it turned out to be a joyful reunion. Esau saw Jacob's children, his family, and Jacob talked about how God had been gracious to him and blessed him, and, and they all paraded through before Esau so he would see. And, and Jacob reinforced that he wanted Esau to have the gifts he had sent to him. He said, I have plenty. Jacob said to Esau, I have plenty. I would like you to have these as a gift. And so ultimately Esau accepted the gifts that Jacob gave to him. And then Esau suggested that they journey together and go, go back to where... Esau lived. And at that point, Jacob said no. He didn't think that was the appropriate course of action. Uh, he said, my flocks have a lot of young and I can't drive them hard, so I couldn't keep up with you and your men. And he talked about how he had children they needed to be cared for. And so he made these, these excuses so that he didn't have to go back with Esau. Now, it's possible that he didn't fully trust Esau, I don't know that from the text. It kind of makes sense because they had just established their uh, acquaintance again, and trust takes more time to develop than what they had at this point. So, you know, Jacob begged off, and Esau went his way, went south to go, and Jacob said something to him about that they would follow later. Well, he didn't. Esau went on his way back to his home country, and Jacob turned west, went across farther west to the um, inland area where his family was. He ended up on the west side of what we would know the Jordan River. And he came to a place called Succoth, and he built a house there, a place for him to live, and uh, all was good. He, he went to a, a little farther to a city named Shechem, 
and he camped there and he bought some property there to live and pitch his tent, indicating that he had intended to stay there and to make a permanent home for himself. And that was all good. He uh, even, the Bible tells us, erected an altar to God. And he called the place El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Well, isn't that interesting? You see, we're beginning to see evidence that Jacob took seriously what God said to him when they wrestled and changed his name to Israel. And so now he puts up an altar. Now, this was a recognition that God was God and God was their God, the God of their household. And this was an important thing for them to recognize. Now, while they were there, one of the daughters of Jacob's wife, Leah, was sadly raped by a young man from Shechem. Well, actually his name was Shechem, so he was from that area for sure. Tragic turn of events. Jacob hears about it. He doesn't do anything about it. Waits till his sons get in from the field. In the meantime, the young man's father comes to Jacob and, and says that the young man really loves the girl. He would like to marry her. Now, this was not altogether unusual or unknown. Uh, it wasn't exactly proper, but there had been known times in that part of the world where that would be, uh, how should I say, a way to get a wife is that you go and you rape the girl and then she becomes your wife. Now, that sounds really brutal to us, and, and I'm not here to say it's not. But we got to remember, God tells us the story of the way things happened, not the way he might have preferred for them to happen. So he gives us the honest story. Well, the uh, brothers, hearing what happened to, to their sister, were furious and outraged, and they are ready to go after them and take care of business. Well, they talked about this possibility of the wife and all of that. So they had a little conversation trying to work things out, and finally the brothers got the men of Shechem to agree to, to an arrangement. Well, the men of Shechem wanted to welcome them to that country and live there, and the brothers wanted to find a way to uh, avenge the evil deed. And so the men of Shechem had the idea that if they could cooperate with these guys, they could eventually get all their stuff. So there's something going on on both sides of this. And Jacob's sons had something else in mind. So they said to the men, to Shechem and his father, the men of the village there, that if they would become circumcised, then they would agree to live there and share families. Their, their daughters could become the wives of those men, and their, the daughters of Shechem could become the wives of Jacob's sons and so forth. And so that they, the, the men of Shechem agreed to that. They said, sure, we'll do that. And... Uh, they thought that would be a good arrangement where they could be friendly and, and live there. And and so they did. Now, we think that's a really strange thing, and I'm not saying it's not, but it wasn't that uncommon in those days. Okay, so so they, uh, all the men agreed, and so one day they're all circumcised. And of course, it takes you a day or two to recover from that. And uh, when they were still in pain from that, the story is told that Jacob, Simeon, and Levi, the girls who was raped brothers, 
took their swords and went into the city and killed all the males in the city. They took vengeance upon all the males, killed them all. Now, you might say, whoa, how do they kill all the people in a city? Well, for one thing, they were badly debilitated by the procedure of circumcision. The other thing is, they weren't really that big of a city. Now, we think of a city as big. city where I live in Florida, Cape Coral, we're the second largest city in Cape in Florida geographically. Second largest by geography in all of Florida. That's a big city. There's a lot of people here. You wouldn't likely be able to do this strategy in a big city. And usually when we think about cities, we think about far more. In those days, a city was very small, very small. You could walk around it in, in an hour. You know, you could walk the circumference of the city very easily, maybe less. They just weren't big places. So we're not talking about the kind of numbers we think of when we think of cities. So it's very much something they could do. And so they took their vengeance on them, killed all the males, took the, the spoils of the battle, all of the females as wives and slaves and all the things that they did in those days. And, and um, well, that was that. Well, Jacob travels on. He goes south from there to a place called Bethel, where he again begins to set up his household. And, and they, they decided that that was the time for them to purify themselves and put aside, put away, I should say, their household gods. Now, it was not uncommon in those days for people to have household gods. Now, again, I'm not defending that. It's true. God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they should be faithful and all of that. It's part of the covenant. I'm just telling you, this is what happened. They had adopted household gods. But Jacob said they needed to, to put those gods away. And so they, they buried them, hid them under an oak tree near Shechem. And, and they traveled on from there. Now, it says that terror from God affected the people around them. So they were protected by God and, and they were allowed to journey on. And, and so they did. They came to Bethel, which is also in the land of Canaan. And Bethel's a little bit north of where we think of as Jerusalem. And there they, they built an altar and, and honored God again. Well, you see, there's a little pattern here that Jacob is beginning to recognize that, that he needs to pick up his covenant responsibilities. And, and in the process of all of that, God again says to him, I'm naming you Israel. You won't be called Jacob anymore. And and Jacob puts up a stone pillar and offers an offering, a drink offering is poured out there at, at Bethel because God spoke to him. Well, what we see is evidence that Jacob is taking up his covenant responsibilities. You might say Jacob is learning that he can trust God. Jacob is developing this ability to, to have faith, trust in God. And that's kind of where we want to be, too. Develop that idea that we can have faith and trust in God. Well, life unfolds. There are a few more things that happen. And they set up their camp, their homeland there. They eventually end up in Hebron, where they're reunited with Isaac, Jacob's father. Isaac dies sometime later that. The Bible tells us that Esau and Jacob bury their father. And then the story continues, not by following Esau's group or family or clan, however you want to think of that, but the story continues with an emphasis on Jacob's family or clan. You probably remember 
that out of Jacob came 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're named here, I'm not going to give you all the names, that's not where we're headed specifically today, but but they were 12 brothers, and well, they got along like brothers do, I guess, because they had a little problem with a brother named Joseph. And you probably remember some of the Joseph story. We want to talk about what happens and how the enmity developed between Joseph and his brothers, and then what happened as a result of their jealousy and hatred, and then how God used the terrible thing they did to save many people. So Jacob's there living, and, and he's got these 12 sons. And, and to start off the story, remember it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other brothers, and he treated him better. He gave him a robe of many colors. Remember that? Sometimes we call it a coat of many colors. We don't know exactly what that meant. It was some kind of an ornamental robe that was better than he'd given to the other, other people. And the more Jacob loved Joseph, though it seems the more the brothers hated him. At one point it says they couldn't even speak a nice word about him. So imagine, this is the context of all of this. And then Joseph has two dreams that he tells his family about. Now, I don't know why he did that. It turns out that it was important information, but here's a young man who they don't like him anyway, and all of a sudden he has a dream about how he's going to be the top brother one day. Well, you can imagine that doesn't go over well. In fact, it even gets his father's attention that maybe that's not a good idea. And we're going to talk about what those dreams were and what they meant and where it takes us right after this. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. 
Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. All right, welcome back. Here we are in Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We've been talking about developing confidence in God, and we've been talking about the story now specifically for today of, of Jacob and his ongoing responsibility, his ongoing story of picking up the mantle of carrying the covenant forward and some of the things that happened along the way and how his sons, his 12 sons, became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we've talked about Joseph and how his brothers hated him and how that caused all kinds of terrible disruption in the family. But before we go ahead with that story, I want to circle back to this little bit of thought about the Bible. This is, this is the year in our church. We call it the year of the Bible. And we did that to emphasize it because sometimes people forget that it matters. And so I've been thinking a little bit about that, and I, and I want to run a few things by you and kind of prod you to think more about the Bible or to take the Bible more seriously or maybe to read the Bible more than you've ever read, maybe even read it for the first time. So the first thing that, that comes to mind is that Historically and still today, God's people have steadfastly affirmed the truthfulness of the Bible. Now, I'm aware that there are people who are continually tearing it down for one reason or another, and they claim to be God's faithful people, and I'm not here to be their judge. It's not my problem, that's God's problem. But I am here to say that we have steadfastly had the example all through history that God's people have believed God's Word. He revealed it to us, and the truthfulness of God's Word matters. So that's the first thing. We have a history of affirming the truthfulness of the Bible. Second thing is that, what I mentioned a little bit, that even in spite of that, the Bible is being devalued these days or undermined. It's as though people are are saying, well, it's an old book, and can we really believe all of it? Do we really need all of it? Maybe we should just concentrate on the part we like. Well, 
No, that's not an option. God gave us all of it. He tells us the whole story that he wanted us to know. He tells us the part we like, and he tells us the part we don't like. He tells us the behavior of people who did right and the behavior of the people who did wrong so that we can understand that there are bad things happen. There are bad consequences when we do wrong, and we should focus on doing right. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons we see so much decay and struggle, both in churches and in our culture, is that we have given up following the principles of the Bible. And so we we can acknowledge that it's accurate and historical and all of that. And then if we don't follow what it says, and we get in trouble, we wonder, well, what's going on? Has God abandoned us? Let me give you an example. Everywhere we turn, everywhere we turn, we are being offered these days the opportunity to borrow money. Now, there are appropriate ways to borrow money. You'll hear money advisors tell you one thing or another. There are ways we should not borrow money. I'm not your money advisor. Don't take financial advice from me. That's, that's ridiculous. But do understand this. The Bible tells us that when we borrow, we are the servant of the lender. And so we have, too many of us, gotten ourselves into situations where we have borrowed money, and now we are in bondage to the people that we owe the money to. Uh, the most telling example of that is credit card debt. Now, my wife and I borrowed money to purchase a house when we moved to Florida. Uh, that was a good thing. We now own that house. We paid for it. Well, that was a good thing. We benefited from that opportunity. And the people that lended us the money, they benefited too. But there's one type of debt that I have never heard anybody really benefit from. Well, a few. They, they play the system and, and they, they do that. It's a whole different conversation. But almost no one ever benefits from credit card debt. And so one of the things that if we're going to value the Bible, we should learn from that and pay off those credit card debts and never get into that situation again. That's an example of if we follow the principles of the Bible, it keeps us out of trouble. Same could be true for borrowing for cars, things like that. We need to be careful. We can buy a little older car and get by. My one car has 186,000 miles on it. Can you imagine that? Never thought a car could run that well with that many miles on it, but it does. And that's fine. I'm going to keep driving it because I don't want to borrow money for a car. All right. So that's an example of the principles. There's lots of other principles in the Bible. So first thing is historical Historically, we have believed the Bible's truthfulness, but today we're beginning to undermine it and devalue it, and we're not following its principles. Third thing, in order to, to follow its principles, we need to engage with the Bible. And I would encourage you to, to think about the Bible in all kinds of ways. And, and fourthly, that engagement means read. Now, I like to read. Maybe you like to read. Maybe you don't like to read. Well, um, discipline yourself to read some anyway, or if it's better for you and you can grasp it more, listen to the Bible. That's perfectly legitimate. I encourage people to do that all the time. But And so that's the fifth thing. If we're going to engage with the Bible and wrestle with it, and I want to encourage you to wrestle with it, and you engage and wrestle with it by reading it or listening to it or a combination of both. Sixth thing I want to bring up about the Bible is choose an English translation translation that you will actually use. There are a lot of good ones. 
lot of good ones. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, you should only use this one. Or somebody will say, no, 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 only this one. Well, I've never found myself in that position. There are just many good English translations. Find an English translation that you like, that you understand, that you will actually use. For many people, maybe for you, the New Living Translation is the translation of choice. It reads so well. It's clear. It's not wordy like some English translations tend to be. Maybe that's the one for you. Other people like the message because it's very down to earth and they like the the language, the strength of language and the clever way they said. There's just so many out there. And often we use a different English translation for certain reasons. But if you're looking to engage with the Bible and you never really have, find one that you will actually use. You can look at them online. If you don't want to go buy a bunch of them to try them out, look online. You can find samples. You can find the whole Bible, actually, on certain websites. And you can read them and compare them and decide which one you will actually use. In fact, you can you can read the Bible 100% using apps on your phone. So explore that idea. There's, there's several ways to do that. Number seven, once you've started to to engage with the Bible by reading or listening and you've chosen an English translation, I want to encourage you to learn the scope of the Bible story. Now, we're pretty familiar with the fact that it begins within the beginning God created, and we're pretty familiar with the fact that it ends with Revelation, whatever that all means to people. Uh, but it ends up with heaven, to put it kind of loosely uh, and, and accurately, because at the end we see that God created a new place for his people to live. Well, what goes on between has a sequence to it, and there's a story behind the whole thing. And, and I want to encourage you to learn the, the chrono, chronological stories of the Bible, learn what happened when creation happened first, then Adam and Eve. Where did Noah happen in the flood? Where did King David happen? What about Jeremiah or Daniel? Where do those things happen? What about the Apostle Paul or or Mary and Joseph, where did that happen? How did that fit in the whole story? Now, one of the ways to use that, to do that, is to learn the scope of the Bible story is Bible storybooks. And Bible storybooks written for kids are a really good way to do that. It's not cheating. It's not because you're not smart enough. It's because they're condensed and they help you see the big picture. And a lot of times if we get the big picture, then we can go back and fill in more of the blanks. So that's one way to do it. Learn the scope of the Bible by using Bible storybooks. Or number eight, use something called the story. There's a publisher that's taken the New International Version of the Bible and, and taken it and put it in order, and it reads like a story from the Bible. Now, you won't find every verse of your traditional Bible in there, and you won't find everything laid out like that, but you will find the text of the New International Version of the Bible written, laid out in a way that tells the story, and you can read it like you'd read a novel. And why not? Why not do that? Because then you'll be able to get a sense of what happens when, and you'll be able to begin to connect some of these dots. Now you want to go a little deeper, or maybe not ready to take on that kind of a, of a big picture idea, let me encourage you to visit thebibleproject.com. At that website, there are lots of videos, lots of stories, lots of blog posts, articles, all kinds of things about the Bible. One of the most compelling things is the way they use video to explain things. You want to know something about a specific word that the Bible use and uses and how it uses it? Go there. They might just have a video about that word. I'm sure they don't have every, every word that you might think of, but go look. 
see what they have. You can spend a lot of enjoyable time watching their videos. They're extremely well made, and I think you'd you'd, you'd benefit from it more than you probably realize. They're just they're just that good. And number ten, the ten things about the Bible that I want to talk about today is start now, start today. Our tendency sometimes is to say, "Well, let me think about how that'll play out." No, take a step today. What will be your next step? to engage with the Bible, to, to celebrate the Bible, to let the Bible inform your life. How will you engage with the Bible to help you develop confidence that you can trust God? How will you go about that? You know, if you read the Bible years ago, read it again. You might be surprised. In fact, I think you will be surprised as to how it comes across to you now. Because life changes us, our perspective changes, and who knows? You might pick up the Bible and start looking at it, and you might just find exactly what you've been wrestling with for a long time. But you thought it wasn't there in the Bible, but it turns out it really was. So start today. Don't put it off. Okay, well, let's get back to the story of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob has reestablished himself, at least to a certain degree, as the inheritor of the covenant. It is now his responsibility. His people will become the people of the covenant. His 12 sons are heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name has been changed to Israel. And by the way, you will see in the Bible that his name is used Jacob sometimes and Israel other times. One person suggested that when he's being spoken of in the Bible as a person, they often use the name Jacob. When he's talking about the, the whole tribe of Israel, he uses the name Israel. So you might notice that if that helps you kind of sort that stuff out. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a benefit for you. But don't be confused by that. It's just the same guy, just with, using different names. So, okay, so he has these 12 sons. They hate, all, all probably, but the youngest one, Benjamin, probably doesn't hate Joseph, but the other guys, they just, they just resent him. And Joseph says to all of them that he has a dream. It's the most remarkable dream. It's in Genesis chapter 37. And it talks about how they were out, he and his brothers were out binding sheaves in the field, and suddenly they had all the sheaves there, and his, his sheaves rose up, and all of theirs bowed down to him, to his sheaves. Well, they, what do you, you think you're going to reign over us, they said? You're going to be ruler of us? What do you mean? And you're going to have dominion over us? No, no, they couldn't stand that, and they hated him more because of this dream that he told them that he was going to rule over them. Well, he had another dream, and, and he talked to them about his dream. He told his brothers that, he saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to him. Sun, the moon, 11 stars. That's, that's all 11 brothers and likely his mother and father. And, and his father even thought that was a little bit over the top and rebuked him for that. But what he was saying was, you're going to bow down to me one day. Now, in those times, they took dreams more seriously than we do. They didn't have all the revelation of God that we have. And apparently God used that to communicate to them. I know that seems a little unusual to us, it does to me. But it was especially important in those days, and it's important for us to understand that when you had a similar dream like this twice, that was real reinforcement that this was going to happen. Okay, so the brothers go off, they hate Joseph, they go off and they tend the flocks, 
their father sends them off and they do that and they they have to go some distance and they keep looking for pasture and all of that and and at some point Jacob says to Joseph I want you to go check on your brothers and see how they're doing and come back and tell me he agrees to do that apparently there was no concern about his safety so he goes takes him a little time to find them but eventually he finds them and when they see him coming they recognize him right away and they begin to plot against him because remember they hate him they begin to plot against him and and figure out what they can do and they want to kill him try to come up with a plan to convince their father that he had been killed by an animal or, or something but one of them reuben says no let's not kill him let's put him in this cistern over here we might call it a well that was probably a large area in the ground that had been lined and prepared to collect or to hold rainwater. Likely it wasn't filled with water at this point. And so they grabbed him and ripped up his coat. He had worn that ornamental coat and they threw him in this cistern while they were trying to figure out what to do with him. Well, Reuben's idea was that if they'd put him in that cistern, then he'd come back later and get him out and send him home, rescue him, rescue him, keep him from uh, coming to any kind of harm. Well, Reuben goes off and he's doing other chores and those guys are there and they look up and they see a caravan coming, a caravan of traders. And so they get this idea that why don't we sell him into slavery in this caravan? Then we don't have to suffer the guilt of being responsible for his death. And so they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And Joseph is now sold into slavery to this caravan of people that take him to Egypt. Well, more goes on in the story in Egypt. But before we leave this, let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, the 20 pieces of silver. That was quite a lot of money. Typically, they would have had about eight pieces of silver for a year annual income. So this was about three years income, this 20 pieces of silver, maybe a little less than three years, depending on who's counting and how they do it. You'll, you might read different things, but nonetheless, you get the idea. It's quite a lot of money. So if, you know, in our day, if $50,000 is an annual income, and some people say that's not even close, it should be more like $90,000 for a household income. Well, multiply that by three, and you get a little idea that this was quite a lot of money that they were benefiting from, and they were going to share amongst themselves. And so they sell him off to slavery, and they concoct this plan, this story, to tell their father, and they convince their father, they go back and tell him, they show him the torn up coat, bloody, and all the rest of it, that, that Joseph has likely been attacked by a wild animal and killed. And he died. Well, they knew it was a lie, but that's what they did to tell their father, and their father is obviously very shook up about that, but that's kind of where the story ends. And then there's a few more things that unfold, and then we pick up the story of Joseph in Egypt, which is what we'll do next week. But before we get very far on that, I want to say a couple of things. One is, it wasn't all that uncommon that people got sold into slavery. Now, we think slavery is a horror, and it is. Make no mistake about it. It was a horror in our country. It's an absolute stain on our country's history. But one of the things that while we acknowledge that, we fail to step back and, and think about and to recognize is that slavery has been a part of the human condition forever. 
And this is ancient history we're talking about here. And so part of our perspective needs to be that slavery has been more common than uncommon in the history of the world. Sadly, that's the way it is. One of the things that we have been told about our country is how bad we were relative to slavery. And there's no, there's no way to, to say that slavery was a good thing. Don't hear me saying that. But I don't think we're actually considering the perspective of slavery as it relates to our country. And I want to suggest a couple things you may not have heard. For example, did you know that America was the first nation to ban the slave trade? Now, that's different than banning slavery. That, that's, they banned the slave trade, which means you can't buy and sell slaves anymore. And of course, you probably know that the northern states in this country had banned slavery long before that. So America doesn't have um, a lot to brag about when it comes to slavery because we allowed it. But we were the first nation to ban the slave trade. Even during the height of the slave trade, when it was common around the world and, and going on in, in nearly every country, I, I don't, don't know for sure, probably every country, of all the slaves that were being traded in this country, we only had 2.5% of the world's slaves. So we had a very small percentage of the world's slaves. Now, it's not a good thing that we had slaves, but I imagine many of us have heard that we were the leaders of the world in slaves, and we weren't. There was only one nation, I can't remember which one it was now, that had fewer slaves by percentage than we did. Again, much of the slave problem has been uh, aimed at or talked about in light of the 1619 project and the date of the first slaves arriving on our shores. And those slaves had been captured from other ships that were, that um, this British ship brought them into, into Jamestown. And actually those, those people were sold, but they were sold not as slaves, but as indentured servants. What that meant is they could work their time off and then they would be free. And all of those first people served their time and became liberated and ended up being landowners themselves. We don't hear that very much, do we? Fourth thing that I'd want to remind us is that jealousy and hatred lead to unexpected and unplanned ends. I don't suppose the brothers expected their hatred to end up in contemplating murder, but it did. And we need to learn to forgive. The brothers thought they could get away with murder well, they didn't because they didn't actually go through with the murder, but they couldn't get away with it. They caught, caught later, and we'll find out about that next week. The last thing is this. No matter what your circumstances, God knows, and he redeems those circumstances for his good and for our good. God knows what goes on. He's not fooled by our nonsense or other people's nonsense. And he has an amazing way of redeeming things that we don't expect to be redeemed. And that's part of why I have confidence in him. That's part of why I have learned that I can trust him. Is that I might not see the resolution of some of the things that irritate me, but I can be sure that God has not wasted the experiences of my life or the things that have happened to me. And who knows how he might redeem them or make use of my contribution to his kingdom my little bit of effort to honor him and to help people. I, I just don't know. But God knows and God redeems and we can trust him to handle that. 
That's not my problem. And it's really quite remarkable. I don't know that there's a better example in all the scripture than Joseph. And we'll talk about it next week, as I said, and how he handled such incredible adversity and how God used it both to expose the brothers' nonsense, but to save the lives of so many people. See, God really does know what's going on, and he really can redeem even the worst situation. And he wants us to know him well enough to wrestle with him robustly enough to come to realize that we can trust him. And I know that's not always easy, hasn't been always easy for me, but I can tell you it gets you to a very good satisfied mind, peaceful heart place when you come to wrestle with God and know that you can trust Him and that He will handle all the things that you and I can't handle. So why don't you just trust Him today? I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Let's talk next week.